Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last time out on the podcast, I caught up with Ed O'Brien, the Radiohead guitarist who has recently released his first solo album. It was a good time, let's just say. I'm a huge Radiohead fan. And if you haven't heard it, yes, I'm biased, but I do recommend it. Now, even though it's only been a month since last we spoke, it feels like actually quite a long time. I think probably because the pandemic has us all in such a strange state. In Ireland, at least, we are cautiously emerging. The lockdown is lifting. We're in phase two. And it's fair to say there is an air of optimism. And that's only partly linked to the fact that it looks very likely that the pubs will reopen soon. What we won't probably get to do in 2020, though, unfortunately, is sample some live music, at least in the settings of festivals or larger musical events. And since we can't do that, well, I thought it might be a really good time to bring you an interview with my next guest. Before I tell you about her, though, I should mention, I must mention, my Patreon account. Yes, I have started a Patreon account. And if you would like to show this podcast some love and support, you can do that uh, by going to patreon.com. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and doing a search for Nadine O'Regan. And if you would like to support the podcast, even just the price of a cup of coffee, well, that would be super. Now... This time out on My Roots Are Showing, I am delighted to say that my guest is one Miss Andrea Kaur. Brought up in Dundalk alongside her three equally famous siblings, that's Caroline, Sharon and Jim, Andrea started in music as a teenager. She became the lead singer of the family band, The Kaurs. Uh, their career was launched actually in the early 1990s when they auditioned for that very famous film, The Commitments, and Andrea was actually given a speaking role. And it was through that, indirectly, that they got their manager, John Hughes, talented, ridiculously photogenic and incredibly ambitious. Once they released their debut album, Forgiven, Not Forgotten, it quickly became an enormous hit. And that was actually, to be fair to them, when you think about it, really despite their existing on that album, an incredibly strange assortment of genres. There was traditional music there, straightforward pop, guitar work courtesy of Jim, and then a very beautiful vocal from Andrea Kaur. I've always thought that her her vocal across all the records has always been quite stunning and, and quite reminiscent actually of Nina Pearson from the Cardigans. Anyway, you know the rest. They became household names and decades on, Fast forward to 2020, with over 40 million record sales to their name, they are still household names. And you know the songs, you know you do. Here's a sample.
few samples there, finishing off with Breathless, probably their biggest hit, certainly in America. Now, in recent years, Andrea Kaur has released solo albums. She has acted on stage in several acclaimed productions. And some months back, she published a memoir, Barefoot Pilgrimage, in which she writes very honestly and very acutely about her early life growing up in Dundalk, her closeness with her mum and dad, her marriage and her own struggle to have children. When we caught up recently in Dublin, we covered many of the topics that she writes about in the book and many more besides. She was very open and honest and very generous with her time. So without further ado, this is Andrea Kors, My Roots Are Showing. I hope you enjoy. Cora, you are very welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And let me say, you know this already, but it bears repeating. You are one of the most successful Irish women alive. Uh, all those album sales, uh, both for your own solo work and for your work with the Cora's, over 40 million album sales. And then, of course, your work on stage as well. I saw you in uh, Jane Eyre back in 2010 at the Gate Theatre. And now uh, a memoir, a really beautiful memoir entitled Barefoot Pilgrimage, which came out a matter of months ago and has already won an award at the Irish Book Awards. So really, uh, creatively, you have been, you've had a very, very busy life. Uh, we'll talk about all of those things. But before we talk, I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like for you growing up and your own parents and your own family because you were the baby of the family really uh, raised in Dundalk with of course your very famous siblings what was it like being the kid being the musical kid but yeah being the baby Uh it had it had its ups and downs (laughs) Uh, most of them ups because you know being the baby you get you know they've been parents have gone through enough of the rebelling with uh, the older two and they're kind of worn out by the time it gets to the baby. So it's kind of, I got away with a lot more. Our parents were regular parents, but they were also musicians that played in a band. And that was a very lively house to live in. There's always the sound of music, the radio on, Top of the Pops was like mass. Um, Did you have the two channels or did you have a few? Oh, I think we had, I do, God, that's so mad, isn't it? But I do remember, I do remember uh, no, we'd more than two, but do you remember Channel 4 was new? We didn't have that. You don't remember that? Or you didn't have that? <laughs> not in Skivereen. Uh, not in Skivereen. Oh, I love that. Because people, yeah, do you know when you get interviewed by people from America, they actually think they're sometimes marveled that we weren't living in fields with cows around us, <laughs> singing, our, singing our music, playing our fiddles that we'd crafted ourselves from the trees. <laughs> understandable um but it was such a musical household and it felt like Jim was always kind of in sessions in in bands Mm. playing um he had a little was it a Tascam recorder Mm. and you started on instruments as well fairly young yeah dad taught us all the piano from the age of uh, six and um yeah so it was like everybody could play the piano and then I think we got more into traditional music as we were older hearing sessions in the pub that we worked in and uh, yeah, then I learned the tin whistle. Caroline took up the baron. And I mean, Sharon had always been taught the classic, classical violin, but she kind of moved it to, 
to trad mm. or blended it I suppose. There's a, a lovely line, I think, on a, a card that you sent to your sister Sharon one time. And I think it was something along the lines of uh, sisters by chance, friends by choice. And you guys sounded like you were the best of friends growing up, particularly you and uh, Caroline. Um, yeah, I mean, because Caroline and myself, there's just an a, a year between us. It almost was like we were twins in the house. Um, but she she looked after me. She was another mammy. Um yeah, I got when she beca- when we became teenagers, or she became a teenager first. I got a bit of a shock when she stopped being my mommy and was flicking her hair and <laughs> didn't really want to play with me anymore. But before then, it was blissful. She looked after me, and uh, yeah, we had we had such laughs together. Were you one of those kids that had a great sense of ambition early on that you wanted to rule the world uh, with music or with your other endeavors? No, I didn't. I don't think I was ambitious. I think that we were collectively ambitious, if there's such a thing. It was actively ambitious in how we worked, how, how hard we worked. My father was the one that, that would say, we'll rule the world every single year. You know, 1995, the Corps rule the world. 1996, the Corps rule the world. Um, so I, anyway, so there was a real collective enthusiasm and, and ambition. But I feel I was more of a homebird, really. Um, I would feel a bit worn out after a day trip to Dublin and God, how life has changed now. But it was like, it was like, oh, I should relax now. I've been to the big smoke (laughs) and it took it out of me. And I had an egg this morning just to tide me. (laughs) I mean, how it changes. But I did. I I would get quite, I didn't really like uh, leaving home, funnily enough. Yeah, I liked it there. There's a line that has stuck with me over the years, which is that sometimes it feels as though women have to give themselves permission to do things that are outside the home. So when it came time to, I suppose, follow your dreams, well, follow the band's dreams, really, um, was there a sense that maybe you were breaking out from the expected stereotypes? Because your mum and dad, even though you had such a lovely, warm household, you write really well and very evocatively in the book about how there were times that gender stereotypes from previous generations kind of overlapped a little bit. And so when your mum was in the wedding band with your dad, sometimes she might feel a little bit like, oh, is it okay to leave the house for that? And then when she began working, uh, I think it was Delgan's Food Products. Yeah. Dalgan milk products. Um, she felt a little guilty, you know? Yeah, I could see. I, I look in retrospect, I suppose. I, I, I think of it as I was writing the book, which I didn't know really was a book. I was thinking that I feel a little bit guilty about going to this and my eye kind of half off the children. I get very absorbed in it and things have gone wrong in, in the writing. You know, I... I nearly flooded our apartment. It was, you know, full of water because I got so immersed in in, in the world I was in. Um, but uh, it was okay, thankfully. But, but, you know, and in that, I suppose that I just noticed in myself, I feel a bit guilty, like I'm doing something sneaky by writing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, I, I, and it's not, it's not something that is given to me by, the situation I'm in, my husband is a, is a man of this time, thankfully. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I think it was probably a hangover from, from our parents, from the time that the houses that we did live in, where mothers usually stayed at home. And, and I do then, in thinking about myself, I looked at her like I was looking in a mirror, and I thought, 
you know, that was the look in her eyes going, is it, is it kind of okay? In the, in the book I'm reading at the moment, at the Dutch house, the, oh, I shouldn't give it away really, but a woman leaves and follows a mission, right? And so a mother leaves. Now, Buddhas and men and, you know, heroes in our lives have done that for years, left their families to, to help the greater world. Um, I, I just find it interesting that, that it, that's how we see it. We, we do see women as different. A mother leaving is, is horrifying. A man, is, 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 a man leaving is quite godly, you know, in that respect. I just found that interesting in the book today that I was reading. Yeah, this Anne Patchett. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I've been wanting to read it, actually. Uh, she's, she's an amazing author. It's beautiful, yeah. In terms, then, of the music and getting back to the band, you did break out, you did go exploring, and you became so outrageously successful at such a young age. I was saying to you on, on the walk up that the first time I saw you live was, I hope you don't mind me saying, out the back of a truck <laughs> in the 90s in Bantry when you were playing a festival and the whole town had come to see you. I could barely see a thing. Uh, I was at the back somewhere, but we were so excited. And it was a time, I think it's very important to, to characterise this, that there was no social media. There was there were very few TV channels, as we've mentioned. The, the forms of accessing music were actually quite limited. So for stars to come out, you know, it was such a huge deal and also for a band to be homegrown as you were and to succeed internationally was such an enormous deal to everybody in Ireland as well as to you guys personally. But what were those years like, you know, the, the days of starting out, of applying your trade? Mm-hmm. Oh, they were, they were, I suppose, incredible. And I think that's what led me to writing the book was actually looking back and going, how extraordinary that this family, that was mostly normal, um, went off and did this you know I mean and we so many funny anecdotes along the way and those you know as I told you that that truck was the, our home <laughs> no it wasn't really but it was in ways um yeah I mean we we'd we'd crazy times and and going around Ireland and I really remember those first tours like there's interviews of me and obviously I look hideous to my own eye anyway and um, I'm going, it's the best feeling ever. I have a real Dundalk accent as well. And, and um, I go back to that feeling. It just was, it really was so naive. Really, it was so naive. And I think, I think that was part of our success, the naivety. There's a kind of blind faith. Y- yeah, of course we're here. We'll do it, of course. So nearly that, of course, became reality, you know. Um, but really, when I look back, I went, God, there's so many obstacles. There's so many reasons not to be successful. Well, the commitments played a big part in your career as well. And Roz Hubbard, actually, the very famous casting agent, was a major force. She was the person, actually, who put you together with John Hughes, who would become the manager of your band. Yeah, I mean, Roz, Roz as I say, she, she went out on a limb. After, after we did an audition for the film The Commitments and played as a band. And John was her childhood friend, and, uh, but he was coordinating the music and he was a musician himself. And he was never a manager nor intended to be a manager. Um, but she did say after, after we performed, she said, John, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but you should manage this band. And of course, you should be managed by John Hughes. And here we are now. 
all these years later and and with an extraordinary story behind us. And that's nearly that that nearly this stranger that came into our lives and had as much blind faith and naivety as we all had put together. Um, that's the most random but beautiful miracle of the story, I think, in a way. You know, it's 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 at least, you know, it makes sense that a family go together. But this man was father to other children <laughs> in a house in Dublin. And, and you know, when you think about it, I don't think I'd be thrilled if, you know, my husband was going, I'm going off to manage this band. And he was he was away more than he wasn't um, on this mission, though. It was a mission and it was a vocation. And uh, yeah, and have such gratitude for Mari, his, his wife, for the patients. Well, she's thanked as well in the yes. book and you talk about him as kind of the fifth core, which is absolutely fair in the context. Did it help, though, to, I suppose, have somebody alongside you who was almost paternalistic? Because I wonder if in other scenarios, your heads could have been turned by the lavishness of the lifestyles and the extraordinary people that you were encountering all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely the paternal side of it. I mean, this is I was 15 when I auditioned for that film. So when he met when I met John, um, he got a surprise when he came to Dundalk and and Jim had to say, oh, no, I just have to collect the girls from school. (laughs) Okay, what have I got myself into? But it was it was, I suppose, for for that age that we came together when we first embarked to make our first record and left, you know, left Ireland, um, our parents did ask him to look after us. And he did. And I look at it now, and particularly in these times, where the exposure of, you know, abuse and, and um, the Me Too movement, I look back and I wonder and go, didn't experience that ourselves. And surely we're wide open for it, right, travelling the world. You know, obviously, like every girl, you've, you've got your own small anecdotes. But compared to people and artists that were in that situation that we were at those in those times as young women, um, we were protected. And I, I, I do think that's that's down to John. You know, he really we were looked after. You're a parent yourself now. Uh, your daughter Jeannie was born in 2012. Yeah. <clears throat> Can you even imagine of her heading out on the road in a, a few short years to be in a band? Oh, no, I can't. I can't. I mean, she's always climbs into my bed. She sleeps with me still. I, I feel I did say to her the other day, oh, you're a teenager. You know, I said, like, I don't want you to come to my bed. But then if you don't, I kind of wonder why you're not coming. <laughs> so um, and I was saying when I'm when she's a teenager, she's not going to want to come to mommy's bed. And she thinks she will. But um, no, she's an independent spirit already. So yeah, I, I, I feel what mum and dad saw. And I, I see it in videos gone by now of them and mammy crying at the airport. God, my heart for them, really, seeing the four of them go. Mm-hmm. And they're no longer such a big part of our lives. Then the work we were going into, John was our manager. So in a way, they really were letting us go. It's one thing, I suppose, to look at it from this vantage point now. But I wonder back in 2006, when you guys went on hiatus, I mean, you'd been so successful with so many albums, Talk on Corners, Forgiven, Not Forgotten. I could name all the hits and be here all day. But I remember at the time thinking, 
well, the band are going on hiatus and I get that. They've they've had a very long run of it. They have been absolutely everywhere. But I did think about you a little bit because as the baby of the band, I knew that your siblings might have been more ready to settle down and have families. But maybe you weren't quite at that point yet. So had those thoughts begun to enter your mind at that time? Did you feel ready for what was to come? As in the settling down or the hiatus? When you took the hiatus, did you feel ready to maybe embark on, you know, becoming part of a relationship, getting married? You know, because those things hadn't happened yet. You know, yeah. like you married in 2009 mm. to, to Brett. Um, and one of the things I loved about the book, actually, there's a great scene where you talk uh, about it's, it's quite brief where you talk yeah. about your meeting and you say, well, look, he was a friend of Jim's and he'd been around. And, and you said at, at some point to him, did you not think I was I was or did you think I was pretty or anything before? And I think he said something on the lines of that. He he did think that you were beautiful, but that he kind of thought that you were in um, a corner somewhere writing poetry about death <laughs> and wouldn't really have maybe have been available. <laughs> Um, but so, you know, you were still on that tip, if you like. I certainly was. I was in that corner for quite a, a few years. Um, uh, now I'm more more in the corner. But I, um, I, he's just joined me there, I suppose. I think when we, when they were doing that stuff, of course, I'm like everybody, your siblings, you know, you do compare in your way going, oh, they've found love, they've found, they're having babies, you know. And I, I, when most people are getting engaged and getting married, I, the, my previous relation to, re, relationship before Brett, before my husband, um, w- w- broke up when I was 32. That's when other people are often <laughs> just getting, getting settled and making plans. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I was, I was, I, I looked at what they were doing and thought, I, I did get a bit worried. Um, but at the same time, I, as for the music and the band, I really was ready to stop at the same time. I was ready to not talk about we for a little while. You know, we'd been, we did it for forever. It was, you know, obviously since we're a family, this didn't just happen when we, when we became a band. We were we pretty much forever. Um, and it is, you know, I, I think every, every individual needs to spread their individual wings. You can't live by we. We doesn't live. But so you were ready and you did other things for a while. And as mentioned, you did marry in 2009. I saw pictures of the wedding. They were on magazine covers and you looked radiant with happiness. Uh, it, It seemed, at least from the outside, to be an extraordinarily happy time for you. And it's maybe only really now with the book that I suppose people have begun to realize that things were difficult in ways that people didn't realise that your battle to have a child was a very personal battle and a desperately hard one. You had five miscarriages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I, I suppose I, that's part of our story and my story. That's part of the ghosts that surround me in a way. And I, I, so yes, I, I, I wrote about that because it was, it was tough, you know, it was tough. The first two were tough because I'm scared that it's never going to happen. And then when it's hard, you know, you realise how much you really want, feel the yearning for. Um, but there's always worse than, than my situation. There's always worse. 
Um, unfortunately, there's, you know, I have Jean and Brett now. And I that's that's like I'd go through it all again many times to have each of them. Can I ask, were you able to talk to people around the time? Because I think one of the things that's very hard for women is the privacy around mm. it, the feeling that they're experiencing loss and bereavement, but they can't share it. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is is our own thing. We, it's not that it's nearly not really others. It's our own kind of well of grief that is hidden because nobody knows that person existed. If your dad dies, they know, right, he was around, now he's not. Nobody knew anybody was around, but you made a whole life of them in a matter of weeks, you know, and and hopes and all of that. So, and there's something, I don't know if it's shame or whatever it is, because it shouldn't be. This is, this is life, this is, natural selection maybe this is the this is this is the mystery and I suppose they're there to remind us that it's a miracle and a mystery that we things are beyond our control but yeah so I think that it what I I didn't really share it because I was I was scared as well that this was you know this you you make this you say it out loud, then it could be a recurring thing, which it was a recurring thing anyway, whether you speak out loud or not. Um, but it, you know, I just just didn't want to talk about it really mm-hmm. then. If you don't mind me asking, did you go through any IVF procedures? No, and I'd be happy to tell you I didn't actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had I had many operations because I had I had scarring. I, things went wrong. Um, from the first miscarriage. So that that's what probably led to all the others. Um, yeah, it's a syndrome that can happen, Asherman's syndrome, and was terribly scary because at one point I did wake up from an operation and think, oh, I, I think when I looked at the doctor, I could see he was not happy. And he, he I said, okay, then what, would we be able to have IVF? And he said, well, no, your womb is... The problem so I so that was that was tough you know that was I mean so I didn't even I wasn't even in a position where that would have that wasn't my problem my problem was the home for the baby the space um but it's but um luckily it did work out miraculously and I I prayed and I you know I do I do believe in the power of prayer and even even my doctor, who I don't know what religion he is or what faith he is, who I love um, and has looked after me since I'm 20, he he felt my children were a miracle. You do talk a little bit about faith in the book. And uh, there's a nice line from Father Brennan who says, uh, life is a mystery to be lived, not a problem to be solved. And mm. I thought that was a nice way to look at things sometimes, particularly if things are going badly and, yeah. and you're struggling. Yeah, and I think it's something that you, you know, you you keep you keep being shown that 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 uh, message. I think until you finally get it, and I suppose when you finally get it, you can die because that's the end. <laughs> but like you know, it is you know. I just think that that is what we really keep getting. You think, oh, I've got it sorted, and even if you think, no, no, I know, I'm humble, I know what's happening. You, life is such that I suppose you never, you never, they don't go like, oh, you've had enough trials. That's it. It's over. It's there. It, this is, I suppose, these are, I suppose that trials are there to hopefully make you more empathetic and a kinder person as life goes on, mm-hmm. uh, co- in contrast to a person that's bitter. 
But you have options. You have two ways to go. Be bitter or think how lucky you are, actually. How was it around your siblings and your siblings' kids at that time? <clears throat> oh, well, it was lovely, too, because I loved them, you know. I mean, I remember the love of, uh, you know, Caroline had Jake first. He's now a big boy. He's a man. Um, but he, you know, I remember going, oh, God, if I have my own child, I won't be able to love love my own child as much, you know, kind of how much you love them. And then, of course, your heart grows. But uh, no, that was always that was always lovely. I mean, yes, things you can't help but walk in a room and see the, the contrast, <laughs> you know, of, of the room that you're in yourself. Well, uh, there's a lovely uh, line in the book where you talk about another book called The Human Animal. And I didn't know this, right? So you were saying in this book um, that babies have pupils that are dilated all the time. And apparently when pupils are dilated, um, it's kind of talks of, of it's about love, really. And our pupils dilate when we're in love. Um, so because babies have dilated pupils, uh, you say that someone when looking will think that the baby loves and needs them. And so they will pick the baby up. So it's almost like this evolutionary thing yeah. where like a, a small little baby will look up at you and the person will feel the rush of love and will go over and will protect them and it's kind of a lovely way to think about it but when you had your babies was it like that were you I mean because not everybody has has kids and and everything goes well as we know yeah. so like was mm. it what you hoped and expected that it would be did you become a natural mum it, it it was you know I suppose I was very anxious initially. I had a hard time. Um, I like I nearly died in the birth, and and well, I lost a lot of blood. So uh, and it was an emergency C-section. So I had to. I had a lot to recover from with having also a new baby, and um, kind of because I was getting blood transfusions and stuff, I felt that I I I was worried that she'd nearly not know I was her mammy. There was like probably really not rational anxieties. Like I wanted her with me. I mean, it wasn't long, but you know, these things are like when I, I, I um, yeah, so I suppose I was anxious, very anxious at the beginning. Um, but it was, the love was overwhelming. But I did look like I'd been run over by a bus. <laughs> And I thought, okay, I'm forever changed, but she's worth it. Uh, I loved a story recently, actually. Your sister was making headlines because she, um, Sharon, she played the violin for mm. IVF <laughs> embryos at a fertility clinic in Barcelona. And this story is amazing. Um, this clinic uh, was, has been saying that uh, playing different kinds of music around IVF embryos can support embryo development and increase the fertilization success rate by up to 5%. That is amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. Were you talking to her about it? Yeah, I think I think it's amazing. I think it's really like, again, one of those beautiful miracles. You know, I love the idea of it anyway. Would you sing to some embryos? I think she's got that market cornered. <laughs> I think I'll leave her to it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you have ventured into other terrain, let's say. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I saw you as uh, Jane Eyre um, in, on stage in 2010 at the Gate Theatre. Wonderful performance. And something you say in the book, which really struck home with me, because it was something I thought when I saw you, was the lack of vanity that's involved with being on stage and 
theatre in general, that it's not so much about glory or vanity or makeup in the way that those glossy kind of MTV videos can mm. be about. It's about very purely communicating in another form and all of us, hundreds of us uh, in the auditorium having the same experience. So how important is acting to you? Well, I I just, I love stories. I love, I, I've always loved to, even if it's a song, but to, that I'm the character of the, in the song when I'm singing it. And I've always liked to do that. That's not about being a singer in a band. It's just being a singer going around the house. But you become it. I, I, I've always been interested in trying somebody else on. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful in theatre because you get three months to, to, you know, you're in somebody in a way for three months, not that you're method and walking around the Yorkshire Moors for three months. But I, you know, I, yeah, just to, the, you know, the writing becomes more miraculous and remarkable. The truth of it is like when you think Charlotte Bronte, I just, you get overwhelmed with, you know, with how complete that person is and how strong and her head and her brain and her wish to broaden her horizons. Um, so I, I just, anyway, that's, I, 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 I loved, I love that. I love it. And those particular roles that I did play, I loved them. I loved those girls. It was interesting to me that you spoke about how in the early days when you were recording, I think the first album, you worked with a very famous producer, David yeah. Foster, mm -hmm. and you were so nervous at the time that you asked to record your vocals, not with David, but with Jim in the room, because you were getting kind of anxiety yeah. around singing around him. And it's amazing to think of that and then to think of you well, first off, going on stage before hundreds of thousands of people all over the world for years, but then also having that very simple stage in a way, although the gate probably wouldn't like me to say that, but the simpler stage of the gate where you're communicating that 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 play, that, play, that, that, that novel. Um, is there a sense of nerves ever or is, there, is, it, is it difficult when you move from one medium to the other? Were you more nervous doing that? I definitely, when I was younger, you know, the David Foster thing was I got bronchial asthma and I kept going to try and sing the songs, but my voice wouldn't come out. And so in my head I can sing, but I can't in reality. Um, so I, um, and also I, he, he works with Whitney Houston. He works with these phenomenal singers and the, those, you know, those discs were all over the walls and the Grammys were sitting on a shelf and it was, you know, I was... Was from Dundalk and, and had played Snow White in the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> no shame in that. <laughs> no shame in that, but it felt like a bit of a stretch. And anyway, so I was overwhelmed. Um, but yeah, when, when I suppose I go into what I'm doing, I think if, the, if you believe what you're reading or writing or singing, then then there are no nerves because you simply believe it you're you're nervous outside it but yeah it's hard for me to explain you also performed in Dancing at Lunasa you were Chrissy and uh, Brian Friel came up to you at one point uh, what did he say because you're lovely <laughs> and he gave me a kiss on the cheek it was so nice yeah. yeah did it feel as though I mean you've met great 
people all over the world. But are there some Irish people that you feel especially, I don't know, honoured to be in the presence of? Yeah, well, Brian Friel, I, I feel just for that moment, that is an incredible moment to me. I believe he's one of our the world's best playwrights. I love his plays. Um, I, I mean, I, I, so so that was just an incredible moment to me. And yeah, in a world where there's no glory and no vanity, very little of it anyway. Once the theatre, you know, people leave the theatre, it dissipates. It's not there for posterity. You can't press record and play it again, or like you know, post-mortem it or, or otherwise, or glorify yourself or wallow in it. It's done and it's gone. And that's, that's, there is no vanity there. And I suppose that, that Brian Friel thought that I was a good Chrissy, which is a beautiful character he wrote, was just amazing to me and, and really one of the greatest things that were said to me, I suppose. The fame aspect you've mentioned there, it is lovely to have the theatre experience that doesn't have that fame aspect in as big a way. Do you need it? Are you so used to it now that if it didn't happen, would you notice? I'm sure you get recognised everywhere. Um, I, I, you know what, that's, it's interesting. I, I don't, I like, don't like to think I'd need it at all. Um, I like to work and create. I don't, I'd like, I wouldn't be in a paper if I'd nothing to say for, for nothing for no reason you know um, and I would hate that so I'd like to think I, I, I would not miss that you know people though at the same time are in Ireland particularly and I actually it seems around the world you know people are nice to the cores a lot of the time you know and, more, and I, I feel God, I don't know. I feel quite loved by the mammies in Ireland and in a nice way, you know, and in a way that's and I love them back. You know what I mean? In a certain way of of people here really knowing who you are and looking and actually feeling for you rather than just looking at you as this remote um, person with makeup. You do, know? do you know, it's funny. Um, I interviewed um, Dolores O'Riordan um, in the Cranberries mm. before she passed and She'd been she'd been getting ready to go back on tour and I asked her how things were and it, it stayed with me. She said, you know, she goes, people can write certain things. But when I go out into the streets of Limerick, yeah. people are so nice to me and people really care for me. And the average person in Limerick just has this great friendship with me. Mm. And it was just very sad thinking of it afterwards, you know, because she was so loved by so many people. Yeah. Um and she lived her life, you know, but but you think that sometimes there is a separation between the, the paper slant versus the real life. Yes. Like, I mean, it's not, you know, people don't generally wake up with a bad headline in their head. <laughs> not, not, not the average person isn't there going rotten to the core. Um, you know, oh, wow, you never got that headline, no, did you? No, not, not yet. <laughs> Johnny's always saying it's going to come rotten to the core. Well, um, can I say there was one time when when the world did line up against you a small bit. It was when you and Metallica got together and you were saying, no, don't go down the Napster route. Uh, pay for music. Yeah. And this was back in, I think, the 90s, maybe God, early 2000s. 
And everybody was like, God, why won't the chorus let us listen to their music for free? And as we all know... Were they really saying that? Oh yeah, I missed that. Sorry, I didn't know you wanted my music for free. You're not getting it. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a time when you guys were aligned with Metallica um, fighting on behalf of the music industry. Now, people understood the argument, but people also wanted music for free. So that was that was the only time. That was the only time. Well, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it, 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 those that did want our music for free, it takes a lot of money to make it. And otherwise, you know, we wouldn't do it. You know, otherwise, other, well, otherwise you don't get to do it. And that's why, more importantly, you know, we were a band a back, back then, as were Metallica, that were a band that hadn't made money on our music, right? That people did pay for it and deem it worthy. I paid for music growing up. I'm not arguing with you. You know what I mean? But, but, you know, and I valued it all the more, I believe, because I paid for it. Um, but I, I, you know, in a way, what was important was for the music of the future. Where is the next Rolling Stones if, if he can't afford to go into the studio? Who's the next Mick Jagger? Will we hear him? If he can't go afford to go to the studio, if he needs a full-time job to support himself going to the studio, how can he put in the hours that will turn him into Mick Jagger? It's not possible. Well, you see, I think people didn't really understand the argument then the way they understand it now, because a whole generation has passed and there is there are more musicians than ever, but very few of those musicians can make a living. Mm. So your generation, if you like, and I know you're but a pup, but mm. your generation, nonetheless, uh, are a generation who were able to have extraordinary, fulfilling, creative lives partly because we all put our hands in our pockets and paid for those CDs. And it's very different now and it's very difficult now, which is sad personally for me to see as, as somebody who loves music. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and now that we sit here and it is so changed, it is, it's, you know, Spotify, though we and our music's on Spotify, so that's nearly free, um, is, is, you know, the artist gets point something, something of something of the work they created. You know, I, I find that, you know, I, I anyway, I'm not going to go into Spotify now, but it is it is probably a, a sail ship at this point. You can't turn back. It's a different it's a different world. Um, and we are one, we're one of the fortunate ones that we did like like athletes make the money in the time where we were when we were performing. Um, so I, I feel yeah, I feel it's I feel it's very different. I feel the thing is, is that I there's a big loss and it is to the music lover. I feel this way. I feel that I loved waiting for Prince to release a new record. I loved saving to buy it. I looked at everything. I opened the, the, the record like it was the, the precious and and, you know, and read all the lyrics uh, to my dad's horror and was just you know, loved it, loved this thing that I got and this world that opened up when I put it on. I think that's why we're all getting into vinyl now, because people who love music want to show the world that they love music. They want large artwork. They want something to hold. They want something to so that when you come through the door of their house, you can see at a glance kind of who they are in a way. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's all so virtual, right? I, I just think sometimes about technology. It's like, it's like to me, we got so excited with ourselves that we, didn't, we, did, we just raced on through, right? And with the wonder of our intelligence and what we can do. And we didn't think that we're, we're actually, we're, not, we're making things less 
nice for ourselves. We're making it a, a world that's that's difficult for our for our teenagers and you know it like the bully at school is not the same anymore it's 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 mass mass bullying um it's it's really and that has come through the like yeah look what we can do and then oh sorry how do we turn back now um so i yeah i just feel i feel that yeah te- I, I just do feel that way about technology a lot of the time you are on social media you have a twitter account although you're not a prolific tweeter, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, but your kids are growing up into a world where often the the, the children of, of famous people are themselves very famous. Um, Eminem's daughter is, is very prolific on social media. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and so are so many other. Um, the Beckhams, of course, be a very good example. Like, is that something you would encourage in your kids? Uh, not at all. I mean, uh, personally, the last time I tweeted... As a bird, um, I don't remember it. I think it was, it could have been. Dolores the book launch? Death or something, or, oh yeah. or the book launch, maybe I did that. I, but it's, 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 you know, it's, I certainly would not want the children on social media. No, I think it's, um, and I know that, that battle, but maybe, maybe things will be different by the time they get to that point. But they're really vulnerable. They haven't grown yet. They haven't, you know, you know, apparently there's a part of our brain that is, that you know, in our teenage years that actually invites us to take risks, right? It's a risk thing. That shines and that that comes out, right? This risk-taking thing. Because that we're supposed to do that as teenagers, to learn. But if you take risks and make a mistake like we've all done, you don't want to document it in your 20s, right? <laughs> and that's what you're doing because your judgment isn't... The judgment you have when you're 13 is not the judgment you'll have when you're 25, or 35, or 45, Mm. and yet it's there. There it is. What was hilarious to you when you were 13 is now, you know, coming back to haunt you. Um, So I just feel, I feel, uh, yeah, I I think it's such a dangerous, dangerous way for them to see themselves. Apparently, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, their children aren't on, on any of this stuff, right? Or like, he doesn't allow them computers. That's the irony of that is is amazing, really. But no social media for sure. Obviously, computers to work with. That's that's. Um, I think that's something we need to heed. I won't keep you too much longer. Um, but will I keep you? That's the. <laughs> <laughs> Be grand. I think I'm keeping you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did I, like. I was very struck by how adept you were in your characterization of your kids and your family in the book and how respectful you were to be able to get across a sense of them without doing anything that I think would have harmed them or potentially upset them later on. Um, And, you know, that in a way, I mean, a book isn't a form of social media. It is a book. But at the same time, it is something that communicates out to the world. So were you very conscious just to be respectful of your loved ones in that sense? Well, a lot that we read, I think, has, has uh, I suppose, in kind of pop culture, has very little dignity in a way. Um, everybody's busy giving out about somebody else or and, and seeing the bad side in things a lot of the time is obviously the most, you know, there's the most obviously striking headline I kind of part in a way 
was I feel I kind of rebel at the at what we're shown on television these days, what's on the news, how demeaned we are as as human beings. They don't show they don't show the good in us. They show the bad in us all the time. All the time we're shown how bad we are, how doomed we are. And I find this that's to me, if, if there's any mission I have in my head, it's to show that we're not. The vast majority of us love each other and are a nice room to walk into when we're in. That's the vast majority of people. And I, I kind of, so I suppose the last thing I'm going to do then, if that's slightly my mission, is to, you know, dish the dirt. Well, you're busy. You got the book. Uh, you've got many other projects going on. What is next, though? Because I have a feeling it could be fiction. Ah, do <laughs> you have a feeling? Okay. I, uh, but you should be writing fiction. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not saying what you should be doing, I, but, no, but no, I mean, the book would suggest to me, the, the memoir would suggest to me that you have a really keen eye for a sentence and that fiction would be a natural progression from the memoir. Yeah. I, am I wrong? Well, uh, no, uh, well, I'd love that. I mean, I, 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 what I read is fiction, you know, and when you said that this book is different, right, than other rock and roll memoirs, when you said that to me earlier, um, and that surprised you, it's, it's, I don't read rock and roll memoirs. Um, I don't really read memoirs other than I love John McGahrens and, you know, I, it's not really, or autobiographies. I like fiction mostly. So that's probably why it reads like it does. But I, but um, yeah, and I also, I love fiction. That's what I, I do love. So I would, I would hope to be inspired. Are you writing fiction? I'm, I'm yes, I'm thinking about something. There's something going on. There's something going on in my head. <laughs> and it was Owen McHugh of um, HarperCollins mm. who was very instrumental in bringing this book through. So are you working with him again? Oh, you know what? I really would love to because he, he more than anything, you know, uh, this was quite a difficult one. Uh, even though people would think it wouldn't, it wouldn't be. It was difficult because it was not the autobiography of a pop star. And I'd say, you know, most would have been lured into turning it into that type of thing. Um, the writing, as you've said, is different. It's stream of consciousness. It's not, I was born. Um, well, no, that's okay. I probably did say I was born. But, um, you know, it, it goes from the present to the past. It's a different type of way of writing. Um, that I did need a champion to embrace that because there was, obviously, it was appearing too opaque to to a lot, um, but but I was I was strong about it, and as John was, um, and I really if it wasn't what I wrote I didn't I didn't want it out. I said I said to Owen and I scared him by saying, "Oh, Owen, I'll put it under the bed." It's okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't put it under the bed. <laughs> but. Um, uh, and so, but I really, I'm so appreciative of of how he did embrace the difference of it, um, and and in and indeed, the you know the, how it looks, the layout. It is not. It doesn't look like the autobiography of a pop star, um, which is very tempting for a lot of people, but not for me. Well, your grandfather wrote his memoirs your dad wrote a memoir you have the memoir and uh, it seems like it's a it's a very fitting uh, 
project for you to have embarked upon and to have realised with such success. As I mentioned at the start of the interview, you won uh, the best uh, popular nonfiction at the Irish Book Awards uh, some months back, which must have been a, a really gratifying and lovely experience to be out front solo for your book as opposed to an album. It was it was really um it was just incredible to me and extremely emotional. Um, and, you know, I think I suppose I got the love of books from dad and and literature and I included his poetry. So I, I felt even more emotional because it felt that, you know, I know he would be just so thrilled about that, that award. And to think that I feel I share it with him and it's, you know, he's he has a posthumous award. Mm. Well, there's a lovely um, dedication at the start of the book and many, many thanks as well at the end, of course. Uh, but you say at the start for Brett and especially for our two great blessings, Brett Jr. and Jeannie. And then you say with almost it's almost like it's actually kind of it's really interesting. You just really? say <laughs> you say this baton passes to you. And I couldn't decide reading it. I was like, oh, if, if I read that and I was your child, I'd be like, oh, gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> it's eerie. Mommy's not here anymore. <laughs> She's talking. God love them. Well, it depends how you take it. It, it, it is. It's, it, I do find it. The generations. The generations was what I thought that now it didn't need to be a book. It could be memoirs like theirs were. Papers in a folder um, for, for grandchildren to read. Um, but, you know, I did feel I, I have to write this story down because dad did his. And this is definitely a remarkable generation and granddad did his. So I did feel I, I, I should do that before I go. Um, and yeah, but I suppose it's I suppose, you know, you could choose to just drop the baton, though. Wait, I mean, they could. Mommy, mommy won't be pleased. <laughs> Well, listen, the chorus have been so successful and I have no doubt that the next generation will be equally so. Andrea Cora, it was an absolute pleasure and a privilege to get to chat to you today for the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. And my thanks once again to Andrea Cora for joining us on My Roots Are Showing. Just to mention, the hardback of her memoir, Barefoot Pilgrimage, is out now and the paperback is due to follow in early July. Now, to play us out, Andrea uh, mentioned Prince a little bit earlier on in the podcast. And sure, look, it is never a bad time to play some Prince. So we're going to do that. Uh, and just to mention as well, before I go, I have a new Patreon account. So if you would like to support this podcast to the tune of, well, maybe even a price of a cup of coffee, uh, please do. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan. And uh, you can also find the link to that Patreon account via my uh, page on Twitter. That's yeah, twitter.com forward slash my roots are show. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with me generally, you can do so on my regular Twitter. That's at Nadine O'Regan. And remember, if you like this podcast, but you're not flush, that's okay. You can also support by the very simplest of things, talking about it to your friends, giving it a like on wherever you get your podcasts or even a nice star rating on iTunes. Love the star ratings. Love a bit of a review. Uh, a, a good review. Just just a good review. That, that's all we're talking about. Nothing else. Um, but uh, it's all good and it's all really appreciated because it gives a bit more prominence to the podcast. It raises it up higher in the rankings and it means that more people get to listen to it and... We all get to continue. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, 
please do consider that. And uh, in the meantime, that's about it from me for another podcast. This is Nadina Regan signing out. We will catch you next time. Till then, do take care. We'll